Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth. And before we get into everything, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it now. We are on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L O U I E X I V on Twitter and Instagram. Cop our niche legend dad hat at poppantheonpod.com and our merch store. And of course, subscribe to our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where you will be getting weekly bonus episodes of this show plus so many other perks this week's patreon episode is all about ariana grande's new single yes and this is of course the lead single from her seventh studio album eternal sunshine which is dropping sometime in the near future supposedly russ and i are breaking down everything about this song plus also talking about little nas x's jay christ as well as jennifer lopez's new single can't get enough so really great episode about a bunch of new pop singles this week and finally gorgeous gorgeous my queer pop party has two upcoming installments on each coast of this great country next up is new york on February 3rd at the Sultan Room in Bushwick. And of course, for Valentine's Day, we will be back at Los Globos in Silver Lake in Los Angeles on February 17th. Tickets for both of those will be available in the show notes of this episode. So for this week's B-Side, I invited Billboard's Andrew Unterberger and writer Eric Bennett onto the show to discuss a phenomenon that has come up that we were discussing on Twitter late last year that I felt like was worthy of its own Pop Pantheon episode, which is why major pop releases seem to be struggling to get second singles off the ground. There's been a number of major pop releases, everything from Adele's 30 and Easy On Me to Harry Styles' Harry's House and As It Was to Miley Cyrus's Endless Summer Vacation and Flowers to Lizzo's Special and About Damn Time and so on and so forth where major pop stars seem to have one massive hit from their album and then struggle to get a second single off the ground. And I wanted to unpack that phenomenon a little bit. Why is that happening? What is it saying about what singles mean for blockbuster albums versus what they used to mean? And a ton of other good things came up in this conversation as we tried to unpack that about singles in general in the pop landscape of 2024. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Andrew Unterberger and Eric Bennett about pop star album releases and second singles. Okay, so I'm here with deputy editor at Billboard, Andrew Unterberger. Andrew, hello. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I'm also here with pop critic and host of the podcast, Endless Scroll, Eric Bennett. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so this is a favorite type of conversation for me, which is bringing a Twitter chat onto the air. (laughs) This originated with a conversation that the three of us were engaged with, along with some other people on Twitter late last year, the concept of which revolved around why can't pop superstars score second hits? Or why has it become harder for pop superstars to score second, third, multiple hits off of a blockbuster project? And this seems to have been a trend that has calcified, I guess, in the last maybe two or three years in particular. We're going to bring up multiple examples of this, but it's something that seems to be happening with artists like Miley Cyrus, Harry Styles, Lizzo, Olivia Rodrigo. We're going to talk maybe about Taylor Swift. So the conversation we were having was centering around Olivia in particular. And I I think the the origin of the conversation was is bad idea right actually a hit or not that was kind of like the first part of the conversation that i think sort of prompted this discussion so maybe in thinking about this before we get into olivia in particular is there anything else about this phenomenon that i haven't mentioned that feels important to what i'm talking about here or are there elements that feel just sort of foundational before we get into the details that i didn't mention about how this phenomenon is functioning for pop stars maybe andrew you want to take that yeah sure well i think the big 
biggest thing is just being this deep into the streaming era now. And, you know, it used to be that pop stars could kind of control the slow drip of music as, as came out from their albums, even after the albums were out, because, you know, not everyone would have bought it. Not everyone would have downloaded it. Even fans necessarily might have been waiting kind of to see, OK, do I like two songs enough in this project to, to eat? well, first off, to buy it back in you know, the 20th century and then you know, for the right. 2000s and beyond uh, just to, to download it? Because even, even that even that takes more work than just hitting play on an album that's already available on streaming. Mm-hmm. So th- there was a more right. of, a, a, of a sort of prove it attitude towards pop stars mm-hmm. and their albums. And so there were plenty of people that might have only known one song off of the new Rihanna album or off the new Chris Brown album or whoever else we were talking about in the 2000s. And so a second single might have been totally fresh for them. But these days, most fans, even most casual fans, once an album is out from a new pop star, and a new album's out from a pop star, they'll just listen to the whole album. So then they already know everything that that album has to offer. A second single release after the album drops just isn't as necessarily exciting because unless they're bringing something new to it, and we'll talk about the ways I'm sure that that, that pop stars have found to make a, a second single fresh, it's just a song that, that they're already familiar with. And so the, the, there's a little bit more of a challenge to make an impression with a second single mm. now than there used to be when a lot of times back in the day, a second single would be totally new to most fans. Even. Interesting. So it's like the phenomenon has to do with the fact that like the accessibility of albums via Spotify in some ways is making it such that like the event of a single beyond a pre-release single just doesn't feel as impactful as it might have felt to the general public before everyone was just listening to everything or everything was readily available. For sure. And, and that's not uh, that's actually a little bit different than the Olivia Rodrigo example we're talking about, because in that case, we're talking about two songs that were released before the album came out. And then right, right. In, in, in the cases like that, you, you do see more success of multiple songs becoming hits off an album if they're both completely new and they both completely predate a project, but not always. Mm. And, and, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, as well. But yeah, so, so it, it's sort of different, two different sides of the same phenomenon here. I think the the biggest thing is definitely the shift to streaming and the shifting of this conversation. So, okay, I guess maybe I want to roll back and talk about when this shift maybe began. Like, how did this start? At what point did we sort of enter this current phase of sort of like one hit from a pop superstars album like when do you guys see this having begun is this effect somehow related to post-pandemic pop star rollouts like how did this come into shape i mean i think maybe one thing i'll add before i ask that question is i think that there has been an increasing trend i guess maybe rolling back through the entire 21st century where i think it has become increasingly hard to do what like michael janet madonna used to do which was like have album cycles where you have like five and seven hit songs off of an album of a blockbuster album. That feels like slowly over time, we've sort of exited that period. But I'm curious, what is the point at which this particular trend that we're talking about today begins? Eric, maybe you can take that one. I think the pandemic is a good point, but also I think kind of simultaneous with that is like the rise of TikTok. It's kind of around the same time the pandemic hit. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of, which is it is hard to delineate. I was going through and like trying to look at like, when did this actually start? And I kind of, it kept getting later at like further back and further back, the more I tried to look, because I was like, obviously Mm -hmm. Ariana put a song out today. I was like, okay, well, where did like the songs from positions end up charting and it was like number one and number two but there was not really anything beyond that so i was like okay so she can't get like a massive long rollout then okay let me look before that and she didn't really before then either and i was like what was the last time like 2008 2009 like i'm looking at the fame as sort of like the last one that i can think of i'm sure there have mm. been others but the more i looked into it the further the goalpost moved away so I, it's kind of been like a, an increasing trend over time well i feel like 1989 had kind of one of those classic yeah. multiple single 
runs. And then I think the most obvious like contemporary example appears to be Future Nostalgia, which like is interesting in its own case because it gets into another sort of sub part of this conversation that I want to have with you with it, which is like what constitutes a hit in yeah. this day and age is confusing. And I think Future Nostalgia kind of like speaks to that in some ways because I think on that record, you have an album that's been held up, I think, recently as a kind of counterexample to this. Like there was a long campaign that went on for like over two years and singles were kind of bubbling up for it for a long time. And like Levitating, for instance, which is probably the biggest hit off of the album, didn't come until like five singles in, which is like, you know, an incredibly rare occurrence. But at the same time, it also represents the phenomenon I'm talking about in some ways in the sense that like a lot of the hits from that album don't start now and Levitating, I guess, aside, feel like the type of hits that get confusing in the current landscape which is like you have hits like physical which is like not a top 10 hit but like feels like a hit in some ways like she leads the tour off with it it's a hit in other countries it's big in a gay club but like is not exactly like an a multi-format hit i guess like break my heart feels like a bit of like a minor like lower rungs of the top 10 sort of hit so it's like an interesting reflection both of like a counter example but also kind of speaks to some of the trends we're talking about right now but i think the for me and thinking about when the trend starts i feel like it has to be traced back to i mean or maybe not trace back, but at least maybe it reaches its apex with Miley and the flowers thing. I don't know. That yeah. feels like a really important kind of breaking point at which you have literally the biggest single of all time followed by an album that makes like pretty much no impact after that. Does that seem like a maybe a starting point of some sort? Yeah, sure. I also kind of think flowers is interesting. It's like it's like almost like an overperformance. Like I I, I look mm. at the success of that song and I'm like they probably knew it would be like a hit. It, I, it but like the massive success that that song has had they become like such a juggernaut. Like, I don't think anyone even involved in it saw that coming. Right. The other thing of the song like Flowers and, and how it affects an album cycle like uh, like Summer Vacation is that it used to be a lot easier for artists and their labels to control how long a single basically lasted. They could kind of mm. promote it on and off radio as, as they desired and they could kind of say, okay, we're done with this song. We're moving on to the next song. And because streaming wasn't a part of the conversation yet and, and for a while there was like digital downloads even, like that was basically the end of it. When the label said, okay, we're done with this song. It's time to move on to the next one. Gets pulled from radio, gets pulled from MTV. Okay, now, now the, the runway's clear for single number two but in the streaming era songs never die basically so you have like song like blinding mm. lights or, or like flowers where it, mm. it's getting streamed in smash hit numbers for a year or sometimes even as long as two years and it's mm. almost impossible to move on to a totally new single and start like a new like a new era quote unquote for that single when the first one is still so massive in the culture and radio has kind of had no choice but to follow suit so now radio mm. will, will play they're still playing flowers basically like it's still on top of a lot of uh, i think I, I i can't remember which chart but like it, it set some record this week like this this very week like a year later for for longevity on on top of, of one of the billboard charts one of the billboard airplay charts and so it, it's it's there's almost no room for a second single, whether it would have been you know, River or Jaded or one of the other tracks on that album, right, when Flowers right. is still so so central to the conversation. You know, actually, now that you're talking about it, I think The Weeknd's After Hours maybe is a sort of starting point for this conversation mm -hmm. in some ways. Yeah. I mean, again, I think this is such an important part of it, which is the sort of obsession with the one song, like the sort of oversaturation of the one lead single, just kind of clearing the airspace for anything else to break through feels like a really important part of this. Like, singles last in the top 10. If you go look 
at the longest running top tens of all time, it's like, I think like some, I mean, maybe Andrew, you can speak to this more. This is your publication's province. <laughs> but like, I, I sort of feel like if you look at that list of the longest running top 10 singles of all time, like seven or eight of them like came out in the last like three years. Like there's this very sort of like, you know, I think Old Town Road was like this. I mean, like there's songs that just kind of last in the top 10 forever and ever and ever. And it kind of clears the airspace for other singles to take off. And I think maybe After Hours is a good example of that because After Hours did eventually get a second hit off the ground, but it was in the sort of way that that happens these days, which is like add another superstar to the single a year after the first single comes out. And then maybe you can sort of like figure out a way into the second single, which maybe is sort of the conversation that can link that to another example that we're going to talk about today, which is Taylor Swift's Midnight. Another mm -hmm. good example of an album, blockbuster album, huge album. And again, I want to talk about the fact that like this doesn't seem to be affecting the album's ability to sell. So, you know, one of the parts of this conversation that I feel like we need to pick apart is like do singles and strings of massive singles matter really in the sense like like it used to be as Andrew was laying out for us before like that was how you sold albums it was like you had to keep having hit singles over a period of years and that's how blockbuster albums sort of formed but like an album like Midnight's and I think an album like After Hours too prove that like that really isn't the case necessarily like Midnight's is the biggest blockbuster of Taylor Swift's career bigger than 1989 in some ways and yet 1989 10 years earlier churned on five hit singles whereas Midnight's which is really interesting had one massive smash similar to Blinding Lights, like just absolutely saturating four quadrant hit. And then you kind of get into a muddy zone where it's like she tries to get Bejeweled off the ground. She tries to get like uh, Lavender Haze off the ground. Like none of those are really clicking. And then we get into the Karma era, you know, six, eight, nine months into the cycle. And Antihero is still in the top 10 at this point. And then she can kind of get this weird ghost version of a hit. And this is like the part of the conversation I want to talk about this element too, which is like Karma. She adds Ice Spice. Obviously, we all know that that was like creatively a failure. I think many people would agree. Yeah. But like gets the song to number two. And then we get into this other weird situation where it's like, is karma or... I mean, Save Your Tears, I guess, is not a, an equivalent here because that felt like a legitimate hit when Ariana Grande got added to it. But like, is a song like Karma, does that count as a second hit? That's one question I want to pose to you both. Like, what are these kind of like ghost second hits that can sometimes happen in this way? Something interesting with the Midnight's post anti-hero singles also is as I was like looking and Lavender Haze also peaked at number two. Right, and, uh, in the debut yeah, well, week, yes. right. Yeah. And I, I don't think anyone would look at Lavender Haze and be like, that's a hit song unless you were like deeply in the Swifty world. But like, I think Karma also, part of I think why it kind of feels like it has this asterisk over it is I feel like it kind of comes in the wake of like the only bad press that Taylor has gotten in a very long time. I feel like it's kind of hard to look at the karma remix and not kind of see a little bit behind the gears of like the machinery of the taylor swift thing right. where it's like i'm sure it rang a little off to people when it's like okay your boyfriend has just been very bad to this to this artist who you're now folding into your new single and yes she's the mm. hot new artist on the scene of course you'd want to work with her but the timing i can kind of bogged the song down a little bit in mm. people's eyes it also didn't help that i mean i suppose it doesn't really add 
that much to the song. The video, I think, kind of got roundly mocked when it came out. So I think that all kind of plays into it. But I, the, the question is, is Karma a hit? I mean, Andrew, maybe you can answer this question for us. Because like, I think this is a strange part. And, and Eric, what you just brought up is really interesting because then you have this whole other part of this conversation, which is like Superstar Albums debut. We stream all the songs. They get like the entire top 10 occupied by their songs. So technically, Midnight's has songs mm-hmm. like Lavender Haze and all of these songs like that are quote unquote top 10 hits but that we all have to just somehow understand are not actually hits really like in the same way that like anti-hero is a hit so my question is andrew like is karma a hit to match anti-hero in any sort of meaningful way well probably not to match anti-hero just because i think that was like a pretty exceptional hit that was the kind of hit you only get like two or three of a year at this point karma i I do consider to be a hit just because you know in addition to the number two peak which is you know for late in the song's lifespan even though it had the ice by remix boosting it i think number two is a pretty a pretty solid peak for a a sort of baseline hit but it was also just around for a really long time it it stayed in the top 40 i think for about 20 weeks so Mm. and that means that radio picked up on it that means that streaming was at least decently consistent on it so and and i I think we get confused sometimes between hits which i I tend to view a little bit more of like an objective thing and like songs that people actually like which which uh, i don't i I feel like we need a different (laughs) we need a different word for it because like you you mentioned dua lipa's physical earlier like you said that wasn't really a hit in the conventional sense because it didn't chart that high didn't chart that long but it is a song that people know and that people like and that people generally have a, a decent amount of affection for even if they're not necessarily huge Dua Lipa people So I think we, we just need like a different noun for songs like that. But I think Karma, yeah. if you look, you, you can look at the sort of objective metrics and say, yeah, that song was by most measures that we consider a hit song to be a hit. It was a hit. And it's also just like, right. the song that, it is a song that people know. It is a song that people, I think, recognize that they, they understand that the concept of it is familiar. You can make like a reference to a lyric from it. And I think people would probably get it again, like not, not mm. one of her most beloved songs, but I think it was, it was present enough in the culture. It was present enough on the charts that you have to sort of consider it a hit. Now, the interesting thing about Karma's lifespan is that that it got interrupted not by a song from Midnight's, but by a song from four Taylor Swift albums ago. Uh, and that, <laughs> yeah. it, it, so it, it might have even been a, a bigger hit, but it kind of got hijacked by Cruel Summer, which was a sort of right. make good hit from, from 2019's Lover that nobody really saw coming, but actually felt a lot more like a hit than any of the other songs besides Antihero off of Midnight's. So it, it's, it's a really weird time. And that's another thing that sort of complicates the entire discussion of following hits is that you're not only competing with the songs from your original album, you're competing with your entire back catalog now. And and, and The weekend mm. ran into that too when you tried to get songs from Dawn FM off the ground, but the song that people were actually listening to was Die For You off of Starboy. Which which speaks to the fact that just putting Ariana Grande on a song is a really good way to get a song to the top o- always of the Always helps. Yeah. Always helps. For sure. <laughs> I, I guess my question question is maybe like in thinking about this a little bit more macro like is this sort of thing where we have to discern as viewers of billboard charts at like what is a real four quadrant massive hit and what isn't in a way that we have to like parse through like there's one song that could be a number two hit and feel like the biggest fucking song on earth I mean I put levitating fourth as an example of that and then there's another song like karma that also reaches number two but feels a little more asterisky even if we do believe that to be an actual hit is that a new phenomenon like readers and consumers of billboard charts having to like parse through and try to figure out how two songs that peak at the same place on the chart could be radically different in terms of like how massively and like widely they're consumed i don't think i don't think it's an entirely new phenomenon i I think we see it more now just because the culture is so diffuse that 
you can even have those those quote unquote four quadrant smash hits that people we know might have never heard before. Like Morgan Wallen's last night was number one for 16 weeks on the Hot 100 last year. I guarantee you, a lot of right. people we talk to in our daily lives have never heard of that song. Not, not only not only yes, could they not sing it, probably intentionally so. Yes, probably for <laughs> a lot of people. But I bet there's a lot of people who it just doesn't come across their radars that often. And that's I think you see that more these days. You get like stuff like Oliver Anthony and uh, Jason Aldean song that became an outrage number one, and other songs like that 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 peak. At really high on the billboard charts for sort of extracurricular reasons that aren't necessarily about the fact that they're just being streamed organically or play or, or, or embraced by radio organically. But those number ones have also existed all throughout billboard history. I mean, you can read Tom Bryan's column on Stereo Gum to, to see some of the sort of coincidental number ones that have impacted around the same time as the songs that we all know and love and remember. You know, you can go back to like American Idol. The first few years of that, you would have mm. uh, the winners of that show would, would, would always debut at number one with their like show written mm. songs that nobody actually liked and that mm. no, that that radio stations ever even played but because everybody bought the song that was released by the by the american idol winner immediately after the show they would have their one week on top and then fall off pretty much immediately after and that's one example but there's 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 dozens throughout the, the the charts history of sort of either fluky or ones that got to number one by different circumstances beyond the traditional paths but i would definitely say it's more the case now than it's probably ever been before right. and i wouldn't be surprised right. if it just continues in that direction for the rest of the decade right and i wonder if there's also an element and this is i think this kind of loops back to what you were saying earlier, Andrew, about the fact that like everyone just listens to these superstar albums when they come out and that's part of what's impacting singles' ability to like seem fresh and new when they get pegged as singles two or three months after the album comes out. But like how much stan culture is driving a lot of this in the sense that like A, it's more important for stan culture to float these superstar albums than it is for like series of hit singles to float these superstar albums like through, you know, having blockbuster runs and doing very well. And then also the fact that stands are very chart literate in a way that like it hasn't been in the past like the average pop music consumer at this point in time is like incredibly conversant with and focused on metrics performance sales numbers chart positions it's something that i think like has become part of the lingua franca of like the stan and also the average pop fan like it's just something that we are all more focused on and it's a bigger part of the conversation so there maybe as it has become more complex possibly to parse the meanings of hits it's also become uh, or it's it's happened in tandem with a rise in chart literacy from the average pop consumer, if that makes sense. This is a sort of an, a new part of the phenomenon, I guess, a newer part of the phenomenon. And it, it has gotten to the point where it's it's almost a little bit more divorced from the songs themselves than it used to be. And you, you see it, yeah, like, like you said, the Stan Armies and, and, and K-pop in particular. BTS were obviously an incredibly popular group. No one would question that. But the individual songs wouldn't necessarily have debuted in number one, mm. with if not for the, the sort of concentrated fan movements that really organized and, and, and worked to support those songs and make sure that they they sort of maximized their chart. Right. Potential. And, and sometimes, yeah, sometimes that happens multiple times in an album. Sometimes it's just once. And I even get confused sometimes when when songs don't get those pushes. I, I wonder what, what what made them not worthy, considered not mm. worthy by the the stands <laughs> to get those pushes. But and especially once they, now we get into the solo careers of some of those artists, where it seems like some songs get get the, the sort of all hands on deck pushes, and others you have a more organic response. Where okay, the, the number of people that would have streamed or bought this song anyway streamed or bought it, but maybe not everyone buying as many copies as, as are legally allowed and, and stuff like that. Right, which is interesting in and of itself, the whole concept of what you're talking about, because it speaks to a counterpoint to what I was saying earlier about like, do hit singles matter in the sense that like, clearly they do. If the Stan armies want them to happen, whatever press surrounds getting a hit single or whatever it is, like it's still something 
something that seems to matter, but maybe it matters differently. And in thinking about that, I want to sort of go through some of these examples individually and sort of discuss whether this has been a problem or not and like how this new singles game for pop superstar albums has affected pop superstar release cycle. So I brought up Miley Cyrus earlier. Eric, maybe you can just speak to this a little bit. How do you view the sort of endless summer vacation era and Toto thinking about Flowers and then thinking about how the rest of that album rollout went? How did Miley emerge from that? I mean, she it's, it's kind of one of the starkest examples we have of like a massive single that sucked up the entire conversation and almost like made the album useless in a sense. How did this phenomenon impact that era for Miley Cyrus in your mind? Well, I mean, yeah, obviously Flowers kind of overpowered everything else on the album. I think my thing with Endless Summer Vacation is I don't know what would have been able to match Flowers, just right. even just right. on a song to song level. I mean, there's yeah. kind of nothing that screams like this could or should be a single on it. And I think you can kind of see maybe some acknowledgement of that in the fact that like they tried to get Jaded off the ground, they tried to get River off the ground. And ultimately, the next thing that was successful for Miley was not a song that is actually from the album. They right. were like, what's right. rollout used to be young instead. And that kind of looks to me almost like a Grammy consideration is coming. Let's try to get something else off the ground here that will be relevant to Grammy voters. It's much more in line with the things that they're interested in. I can't think that's kind of been holding up the second end of the Endless Summer Vacation era. I think that's kind of the thing that's been going on forever is like what's add this next thing in that even if it's not really part of it, we'll fold it in. Lizzo is in this conversation and mm. her debut, really the hits from that album were not really from her debut album. They were right. old songs <laughs> that got popular after right. the fact and were kind of folded in. Good as hell included. Like they, not either right. of her bigger hits from that were on the debut. No. So yeah, I think it's just kind of we're going to work with whatever can work at the moment. Right. So does that make Endless Summer Vacation a failure in your eyes? Like how do we view that as consumers? I think artistically it's a failure. I failure um, <laughs> I mean, but, that's a different conversation well sure but commercially no i think it's i mean you look at the look at it on paper and it is her most successful projects and spangers yeah i think it's a two-pronged question there right okay so that's like that situation i think another really interesting example of this recently has been harry styles this album came out it had like the most massive lead single and as it was it became a critical darling people loved this album yet no other singles get off the ground how is this album part of this conversation like, and how did the fact that only one song really popped off as a hit impact the sort of long tail of Harry's house? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it ended up really mattering that much. I think Late Night Talking did okay for as far as second singles go. It was the same sort of Miley effect of it was still competing with As It Was because that song was so massive that it basically lasted for the rest of the year. And late night talking, you know, it made a little, made a little ground up on radio. It did well enough, I think, to like maybe get back into the top ten for a week or something like that. And I, I think it's sort of accepted now that that's that's okay for a second single. That's like acceptable. It's not, you know, it, it, right. it's it's not levitating in terms of like like a, a follow up to a to a successful first single, but or third single, I guess, at that point. But it's it's okay. And you know, music for a sushi restaurant, sort of the same thing. Like, didn't have a huge chart impact, but it was in those uh, those like Apple commercials, and it had a music video that some people talked about. And I was like, okay, that's good enough. And then I, I think there were even plans for like a fourth big single that maybe just never kind of came around because they realized it's not mm. necessarily worth the time and investment. And right. by that point, the Grammy campaign was already underway and it ended up winning album of the right. year at the Grammy. So you certainly couldn't say that that album 
didn't hit its potential because I mean, and and because as it was carried through the new year anyway, it was it was still impacting the charts and it, and it obviously impacted award season. And I don't think anyone would call that album a flop because it, or, or, or no. not, not not even a flop. But I don't think anyone would say that it, that it, it oh well, what what happened with that album? That just album just kind of came and went because it had right. the one massive single and because it had a pretty good critical reputation anyway. That's that's sort of a good example. It's it's, it's almost maybe even a counter example to to endless summer vacation where yes well, right well, yeah like like, like who like, the endless summer vacation most existed it seems to, to, to prop up flowers and I, I, thought, I thought it had some okay songs on it too but it definitely that definitely that definitely will not be remembered as a miley era that that fans really venerate but harry's house will because it, it, it was beloved critically and because it had the one smash single that's really all you sort of need in 2023 this is really interesting i actually think these two albums as counter examples sort of prove different ends of the spectrum to me because i mean again i know that like it's hard to say endless summer vacation was a failure because it has flowers and then we just count the streams of flowers and it makes it her most successful era since bangers but like let's be honest that album outside of like whoever core miley fans like were standing it like made absolutely no impact outside of that so it was a problem in some ways that that album did not get a second single off of the ground like i guess maybe they're just happy for it to just be a vehicle to deliver flowers and maybe that was the intention of it and they didn't care that there was not more singles i wouldn't feel comfortable calling it the endless summer vacation album cycle a success i don't think that that was a success they had one smash single and the album was meaningless i mean again we can talk about the Grammys nominating that for album of the year. That is absolutely crazy to me, but whatever. That's a different conversation. Whereas Harry's House is a similar situation in terms of like how it performed singles wise, but feels, as Andrew was highlighting earlier, wholly different to me. And I think maybe the ingredient that makes it wholly different to me is that you have the same sort of zeitgeisty first single that kind of prevents more singles from happening or, you know, plays some role in preventing more singles from happening. But the ingredient that Harry's House has is the sort of a critical adoration or the critical, the sort of approval from gatekeepers that this is a cool thing, that this is something that, that's been approved, that sort of gives the project life without needing necessarily to have seven number one songs on it. Like it feels like a blockbuster without needing to have the singles. Like somehow that's a way that an album can operate like a Rhythm Nation in 2023 or 2022. Like you're not stringing together seven or, you know, seven top five singles, but you are stringing together like one big single and a lot of like critical acclaim and like gatekeeper permission to stand. That feels like the differentiating factor in some ways between the Miley project and the Harry project. Well, I, th I think the other the other important thing to sort of keep in mind here is that the Harry album had a massive debut, had like an absolutely enormous debut with some, something like 500,000 album units, right. like two, 200,000 in sales alone. It kind of pre-minted a lot of hits off of it because it had one of those album bomb type debuts on the Hot 100 where like every song I think hit the Hot 100 from it, a couple in the top 10, a couple more in the top 20 etc right. miley didn't really do that i mean as big as flowers was it, you know and it boosted that album into like a top five debut but not a number one definitely not anything in, in anywhere near harry's first week numbers and also it didn't really do that sort of uh album bomb on the hot 100 i think there were like maybe three or four songs that, that debuted on it apart from flowers and none in the top 10 none in the top 20 maybe not maybe even not in the top 40 so if you have that mm. sort of strong debut like harry's house had like midnight's had which was one of the strongest the strongest of the decade and that i think buys you a little more credit in this discussion whereas mm -hmm. okay maybe you didn't produce more than the one gigantic hit single 
but you had the gigantic hit single and you had a pretty, pretty large debut. So I think it sort of validates an album further if you then produce a second and third hit. And the queen of this is Doja Cat, who who has a lot of, right. sort of softer debuts in terms of the first week. Planet Her only debuted at number two. A Scarlet, I think, only debuted at number three. But she keeps spinning off hits off those albums, including right now with Scarlet. Right, right. Agora Hill is just at the top ten. So that album's not going to be seen as a flop five years from now, even though the first week a lot of people are like, oh, what's, what's, what's going on? Yeah, here? right. How good is this episode? It's good, right? Well, great news, because if you like what you're hearing here, you're going to love what we're doing over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where for five bucks a month, you'll get bonus episodes of our show weekly. You heard that right. Every single week, we're dropping more of the same searing, in-depth combos you love about all your most anticipated new albums by stars like Ariana Grande, Dua Lipa, and Tate McRae, just to name a few, parsing apart all the newest pop singles in our famous new music speed rounds, and of course, course, diving deep on your favorite classic albums like Madonna's Hard Candy, Christina Aguilera's Stripped, and so much more, all with your favorite pop pantheon guests. All this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So sign up at the icon tier now at patreon.com slash poppantheon, or simply by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. You won't regret it. I think one of the things that's maybe shifted in the pop landscape is that like creating a culture around an artist and an album is more important than multiple hits. Like there was no culture around Miley and Endless Summer Vacation. Like that was very much centered around this fluke hit song that just spoke to everybody for some reason. And it didn't really have to do with the fact that like people were ready to like enter the world that Miley Cyrus was creating with Endless Summer Vacation. Whereas with Harry, he had been building slowly and creating this very kind of avid core fan base. And there's a real kind of idea around him like he's an artist that like has created a like a culture like there's a cult of personality and culture around Harry Styles as kind of this return to rock values of the 70s and that he's kind of like the cool guy's pop star and he has this very specific sort of milieu that like I think ultimately can make it so that like the album era Harry's house is not about a string of hit singles but it is about being part of this cultural movement this links back maybe to another album that we should be including in this conversation which is Billie Eilish's like happier than ever which Mm. was another album again an artist with like a huge culture and kind of cult of personality fan base that surrounds them and like a real unified aesthetic presentation similar to harry in her own way and like that album only produces like one hit off of it the the title song but it doesn't really matter like that album is a success because it's kind of like the culture of billy eilish is something that people are bought into there's the critical adoration there's the large cult core fan base that is like absolutely there for anything that they do so i think like that's another sort of connective tissue and then maybe you know in the more in the miley camp you have lizzo who again is an artist that does feel like she has a culture around her and yet that album strikes me more in the endless summer vacation mode of this particular phenomenon in the sense that like tried a bunch of singles that didn't work then about damn time becomes a hit thanks to tiktok but like can't get another single off the ground from that record and like the album doesn't really like have a lot of critical love like how do you view the lizzo album in this binary or as part of this culture this is a kind of a disadvantage with this i think because she has sort of like the shortest career as a hit maker of of everyone we've been talking about you're right she hasn't really had the time to like build up this like intense fan base that's going to be hang on every word i also think that like she's run into a couple of scandals of her own which has kind of maybe like tarnished how she's viewed by the broader public yeah i mean i think at the end of the day the problem with the second Lizzo album is that there's just not really much there to boost. Right. It's, it's like that's that's where it's similar to Miley. Yeah, I think they're kind of lucky that About Damn Time became the hit that it did. 
good. There really mm. isn't anything beyond it. And I mean, we talk about like critical approval. I, yeah, I don't think there is really that base of people that are trying to like boost Lizzo as anything that critics care about because they it got roundly panned. The thing about these artists that, that boost their albums and, and, and get, get their albums off the ground on TikTok is that that's not a repeatable. Like, no, this is a, a thing that we come back to a lot on my podcast, which is you cannot game TikTok. It is not actually possible to game TikTok because the people who are trying to use it to launch things off the ground, things don't go viral on TikTok because they're a good song. They go viral because they're useful. There's like a line that is useful in a kind of video and it's hard to predict. I mean, like the Mitski song that has been climbing the charts, it's useful because you can put it over videos that are cute. It's not useful because, oh, Mitski is this big pop star. Let's launch her a new single here. It's doomed to fail if you're trying to get things off the ground that way. It's really, it's really interesting too because Lizzo's like a strange thing to me and I'm, th- I'm talking about pre-scandal Lizzo. Like obviously well, sure, now we have yeah. this whole other X factor here that like makes this more confusing. But let's say like prior to what happened with Lizzo, it's really fascinating to me because she also brings in another part of the conversation of the modern pop star condition which is like, I feel like people are very bought in or like there is a group of people that are very bought into like Lizzo the idea, like Lizzo the promoter of body positivity, Lizzo sort of like a, as a force for just positivity in the world and like her music just feels like very secondary to that. So it's this weird phenomenon where it's like Lizzo's album doesn't like matter that much and like yet she could still go on an arena tour and probably like be successful. Like it's just like a strange thing where it's like I wonder if Lizzo's album like had zero hits, like if About Damn Time like had not even happened, like would Lizzo still have been all able to like launch a successful arena tour and like do that even though like she's not really a big Spotify streamer like it's very different than Harry in that way like it's like it has the similar sort of patina in the sense that there's this one big hit and then there's no other hits but yet it feels like a whole other sort of mode of pop stardom in, in the sense that like Lizzo the brand the music isn't like that important to it or something like that I don't know like or is only secondarily important to it or something yeah. like that she's a great celebrity she's not a great pop star that's kind of yes. how it boils down okay so the last example that I really want to dig into with you guys here is Olivia Rodrigo, which is like the conversation that we all were kind of engaging in on Twitter that sort of got us here today. So this is really interesting to me because I think it like loops in a lot of what we've been talking about today. So like here you have an artist that had kind of one of the counter example albums with her last album. She had Sour, she had at least two like smash hits of the decade, like back to back. And then she had Deja Vu. I mean, there was like a bunch of real hits off of that album, like in the classic sense. And then you have this album, which has been really interesting because Vampire definitely, I think we're going to say is like a traditional smash hit song, more or less. Maybe not Andrew seems. It, it is. It's just, it's just hard when you compare it to a song like Driver's License, which just was one of the five to 10 four quadrant hits of this decade. And Vampire, right. it's like, I've said this to a number of people who are discussing this album. Every part of this this album rollout did just well enough that you couldn't call it a flop, but no better. Mm. And so Vampire debuted at number one, but only barely. And it was looking kind of touch and go there for a minute, but it had a lot of sort of traditional sales boosting it. So the, that that's never necessarily like a great sign when that's what gets you over the finish line. Because it's a sign of stands. Yeah, exactly. It, it, sometimes it's a, it's, a, it's a sign of like extracurricular, like chart manipulation. Not, not in the really mm. nefarious sense, but in, in the playing the game sense. So, so that was not necessarily the best indicator. And then it only spent one week on top and then it had 
hung around the top 10, but not really the top half of the top 10, and then the top 40, but sort of the lower half of the top 40. Every, at every part, it did just well enough that, like, yeah, yes, it's a hit, but is it is it like a super organic hit? Is it, it's closer to karma than we think, mm. I think, except for the fact that people mm. actually liked it and that it was critically acclaimed. It is Grammy nominated. It is, from by most definitions, a successful song, but every part of its chart path gave me just a little bit of twinge of like, yeah, like, is this yeah. as well as we wanted it to? I'm, I'm not so sure. Mm. All right, so, but what about the rest of this rollout? I mean, this is, again, I think your characterization of it, like, just getting up to the line of not seeming like a flop feels very accurate to me. It's like, this album then spun off, like, another top 10 in Bad Idea, right? But kind of in that way of, like, it debuted high, but then, like, kind of didn't stick around. Like, is Bad Idea right? a hit? Yeah, I, I would say not really because it didn't really have the longevity. It, it only had like, I think it only had the one week in the top 10, maybe maybe a second week when the album came out, and then only like five or six weeks in the top 40. That doesn't super feel like a hit to me. But again, mm. people liked it. And I, I, I don't want to seem overly negative about the Guts rollout or about any of these songs, which I'm a fan of, and I think the album's great, and it, it's going to go down as a success because people liked it and because it kind of hit the, the chart benchmarks that it needed to. But does it feel like her commercial momentum is pushing forward rather than lagging behind where she was yes. at this, this point in the last album? Not really. And I think that the, the song that I was really interested in, I think the song that, that sort of got this discussion going was Get Him Back, which was mm-hmm. the, the sort of third single, unofficial third single, and it felt like it got more of a push than Bad Idea, right? It was Bad Idea, right? It had a, a standalone release and had a video, but she didn't really like perform it anywhere. It, it didn't really have much of a life beyond that first week. That, that was sort of like the, the test second single. It was sort of what Deja Vu was at first before Good For You came around and sort of replaced that in the culture. And Deja Vu came back around again later, but Bad Idea right never did. But anyway, I think the plan was, at least as I interpreted it, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not basing this on anything I've heard from her team or anything, but I think the plan was, okay, well, we'll buy some time with Bad Idea right now, we're really going to hit him with Get Him Back because not mm-hmm. only did Get Him Back have like a very, very involved music video, it had like an, uh, an Apple campaign associated with that music video that ran like constantly for, for, a, for a month right. or two. And a VMA's performance. And a VMA's performance. And it was in the Mean Girls musical trailer before any song from the actual Mean Girls musical was. And it yeah. felt very yeah. much like, okay, we are putting all of our, we're, we're getting all of our ships in a line here. We're getting all, all, all of our ducks in a row. This is the song that we're trying to push and kind of make that sort of second hit to extend the album's life the way Good For You did for Sour back in the day. Because because that was what really pushed that album into hyperdrive. Driver's License was already starting to die out a little bit by that point. But Good For You came along, gave a jolt through that entire era and made it so that when Sour came out, it was, it was kind of coming guns blazing. And that didn't quite happen with Get With Getting Back. It did debut like just outside the top 10. Good debut. Stuck around, still on the chart right now. It's, it's been on there for 15, 20 weeks already. So you couldn't, again, you couldn't call it a flop. But did it become that sort of lifespan extending second hit where we look back as one of the signature songs, not just of this era, but of Olivia Rodrigo's early career in general? Not quite. The reason we started talking about this a couple months ago is because I didn't quite know what to attribute that to because the song did seem to have everything going for it, both in terms of the response to it from fans, from critics, and in terms of the promotion, which it really seemed like they were pushing, they're kind of putting all their chips in the middle on this. And it is sort of all the things that we're talking about here. You know, TikTok's not repeatable. You only get so many cracks at gaining that 
sort of first level interest for an album cycle. And I, I, I almost wish that they had maybe flipped the order of Bad Idea Right and get him back. Because I, I think mm. if this had been released as that second standalone single, it might have had more impact. But by the time you get to the the album release week and this and and get him get him back was released as part of the album release week, it's harder to make one song stand out, even with a video, even with a big VMA's performance. There there really aren't those kind of buttons to push anymore that that really indicate to fans this is the song, this is the song you should be paying attention mm. to. Use this in your TikTok videos, share this with your friends, put it on memes on the internet, etc. You can't really do that. But by the time the album's out, it's entirely up to the fans to either choose the single that they want as the breakout hit, and sometimes that's completely unpredictable, or to just say, you know what, we're just going to take the album and listen to the songs we like, and we're not going to really push one song from it. And once mm. the fans kind of make that decision, there's not a lot left you can do about it. Yeah, I kind of wonder, like, was the rollout of the album like itself too short? Because I remember when the album got announced, it was only like a month and a half away it was not very long and had they like given it a little bit more room for vampire to actually fall off on its own and then put something else out maybe it might not have gotten swallowed up by everything else around it i don't know it's it's impossible to know but i just it makes me wonder if it was not a long enough push because i mean in my kind of digging i was like how long did like the fame rollout go have happen and like just dance came out in april and the album came out in august and i just cannot see an artist today doing a rollout that long and we only one yeah, single sure. out before the album comes out the olivia thing is fascinating to me because it really is like maybe the most perplexing case of this entire thing to me but maybe it just speaks to the fact that like it's the environment more than anything that these stars are doing or not doing that is impacting this because it's like when i heard vampire i was like she knocked this out of the park in terms of like giving another version of driver's license that feels like close enough but not a repeat but still feels qual it was like i couldn't believe how like squarely they hit that on the head so the fact that that wasn't like a blockbuster in the, on the level of driver's license was like my eyebrow went up for that and then it's just so been, been so interesting because bad idea right like maybe my favorite olivia single ever and it's been really interesting because just from dj world perspective like no song that olivia's ever made has gone off harder in the club than bad idea right like bad idea right like goes all the way off like people fucking love that song yes, I know that It's again, it's one of those strange things with these hits where it's like, it is kind of a hit. Like it, it, it's weirdly loved, but yet like the chart doesn't really reflect it in the way that it should or seems like it should. And then when I heard Get Him Back the first time on the album, I was like, this is a so like home run, like grand slam. I was like, this is like, it sounds like, you know, 1989 era Taylor songs. It's, it's just, it's so squarely the, per without sacrificing the Olivia like I was like it's so squarely what you want here like if you are a marketing person at a label and you hear this song like this is what you want the pop star to come back with it's get him back it's like literally you couldn't ask for anything better and I'm like what do they what do people want from her like what could she be doing differently it just feels like it's all been so well executed and I guess it just again I don't think it's anything that she's doing I think maybe it just doesn't matter like as Andrew was saying like I think the guts era already goes down as a success and maybe the point of the matter is that like these campaigns with singles just is a thing of the past like the campaigns of multiple hits with hit multiple singles it's not what people remember or what need to prop an album up in this way like it's just a really interesting phenomenon like olivia to me is the peak of this because i'm like i don't know what she could have done differently to like make this go better like the other ones i can point out why maybe it didn't happen but not really her it's sort of instructive to compare this to, to happier than ever which is another sophomore album from a, a you know burgeoning pop star who 
had uh, absolutely everything went right on their first album. It's it's sort of hard to to do that a second time anyway. But happier than ever, the title track kind of actually did have a similar chart path to the one we're talking about with Get Him Back. You know, I think it also debuted at number eleven. Didn't really get radio pickups, so it sort of slid down the chart from there. You know, it, it lasted a decently long time, but not like a, a super like like weekend level long time. But it was sort of like like that song kind of needed like a full year or two to kind of prove its bona fides commercially. Like now it's one of her most streamed songs. Now it's sort of, it's a perennial on like the global two hundred chart, which means that it's being streamed all around the world. And now it's considered, I think, one of her signature songs. And it got a big Grammy performance and, and all of this. Like it, it's going to be one of the songs that this period of her career is m- remembered for. Maybe that'll happen with Get Him Back too. And, and it may, maybe you just kind of need to play the long game with a song like that and say, okay, maybe it'll never hit the top ten, but maybe this time next year it'll have two billion plays on Spotify or something like that. You know, it, it, the, both the frustrating and the validating thing about the pop landscape currently is that sometimes you can't measure things in weeks. You have to kind of measure them in years or eras or decades. Mm. And so we'll mm. see that maybe with Olivia. And, and, it, and it might not be Get Him Back. It might be uh, Lacey or, or Ballad of a Homeschooled Girl. Or it might be getting that title wrong. But it might be any, it could be any, any song on that album that just randomly catches fire one week and all of a sudden it's the most streamed song off that album. You just, you just never know these days. And, right. the, the, when, and when you sort of ask the question, well, what more could Olivia have done? This is, this is a question of how much you want to play the game because what she could have done is what Noah Khan is currently doing. And he's been a really, really interesting artist in this discussion because he had a breakout album halfway through, or two-thirds of the way through 2022 called Stick Season. Didn't have like a major chart impact, but like was slowly gaining ground, slowly gaining ground. He released a reissue of that album early to mid-2022 that had a song called Dial Drunk on it. He teased that song excessively on TikTok. People were ready for it when it arrived, and that became his first Hot 100 hit. Then he piggybacked on that with a Post Malone remix of a few weeks after that. That drove to the top 40 for the first time. And then after that, he kind of went back to a bunch of those Dick Season songs and started releasing new remixes of them. Uh, he had a song with Hozier, one with Casey Musgraves, one with uh, Gracie Abrams. And those remixes all propelled those songs that weren't Hot 100 hits originally onto the Hot 100 for the first time. And now the sort of momentum of that project is kind of, it's, it's been a rising tide lifts all boats situation. The title track to Stick Season, which was the sort of first viral hit on the album that wasn't quite big enough to make the Hot 100 originally, is now not only on the Hot 100, it's, it's into the top 20. It might be in the top 10 next year. Mm. And so you can kind of play the long game and just kind of keep going back to the well if you feel like your your fans are interested enough in it. Olivia could have done that. She could have had a, a, a Get Him Back remix with Ariana Grande or something. And and that might have propelled that song back to the top 10. It might have given it a second life. Or she she could she could still do that if she wants to with any of the songs off that album. Or she could do a deluxe edition with five new bonus tracks. Maybe one of them catches fire in a way that none of the others did. That, that's not who Olivia Rodrigo is. She has sort of separated herself by saying, I don't play that game. I release mm. my album. The album comes out. I tour the album. You'll see me again in two years. And yeah. that makes her albums more impactful, or at least it made, I think, Guts more impactful when it first showed up because we're not sick to death of her, you know, kind of, kind of milking every every last bit of commercial juice she can from the album. But it also means that her songs are vulnerable to not necessarily reaching their maximal chart peaks and then their commercial their commercial potential because she's not willing to do those things that sort of revive interest in songs the way artists tend to do in 2024. But I wonder if, like, that speaks to a changing imperative here because I think that, like, Billy again, is a great example of someone that 
that's like yeah, you mentioned her first album being kind of like a no flop success but it's like what does that mean in that with that album that means she has one number one song it's not exactly like Billie Eilish was stringing together like bad Michael Jackson number one single run like True. that album was a success because of all the other stuff because of everything else we're talking about which is like cult of personality culture around pop star like that is the new currency like that's the thing that I think is the difference here it's like I think if Olivia Rodrigo had put out guts in 2005 she would have needed all of those songs to go to number one like that would have been the entire sort of story of this record falling or, or succeeding I think the point of the matter is Olivia can sort of say this was a success my fans loved this album critics loved this album the song streamed well enough and like that's a successful era and I think that that's really the thing that's changed that we're sort of like all needling at from all different angles here is like what the currency of a hit era is is no longer so focused on the string of hit singles that's the thing that I feel like walking away from this conversation is sort of what I'm left with is like Harry Styles that era very successful and it doesn't matter that there wasn't a string of number one hit singles in a different time period when we were talking about the fame the fact that the fame had two number ones and two more top fives and then she went into the fame monster and had another like that was all the way that we thought about that album being successful but I don't think that that's the way that these artists are functioning now the biggest example of this I mean we've talked about her a bunch already but it's Taylor Swift I mean she just had the most successful year any pop stars had in my lifetime baby going back to Michael Jackson or even the Beatles I, I know some people who are around then who say that and she could have released no songs this year and still had a year just that successful. And and the, the hits that she did have, one of them was a remix of a song from last year. One of them was a song she had at least originally written 10 years ago and, and was now being recorded for the 1999 reissue. And one of them was a song that literally was released five years ago. So the, the fact that she had her greatest year as a career and, and it was totally divorced from any sort of contemporary musical output sort of is, is the ultimate proof of what you're saying that like, not only do you not need to have hits to sort of validate an era, but you, you might not even really need Need to have an album to validate an era. You you, you could right, have a successful right. tour. You could have a successful media run. You could just kind of be in the spotlight for a year in a way that just drives people back to your old catalog and has you charting five albums in the top ten of the Billboard 200 at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you you can your supremacy will be self evident even if your actual contemporary music output is negligible or just not the thing that's driving the conversation. You know, Taylor Swift now has hits because she's Taylor Swift, and that that will probably last for a very long time. And she doesn't necessarily mm. need to have the songs to prove it at this point because she 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 is who she is she her popularity is no longer dependent on her having hit singles to continue to prop it up mm. i'm thinking as we wrap this up like are there any counter examples to this even if we sort of widen our scope here and get out of sort of like the traditional pop superstar i mean the one that comes to my mind of course is SZA, which i think weirdly enough sort of fits the future nostalgia model a little bit more obviously for me in the sense that like the album came out it was very well received it had one massive hit when it came out it also contained a couple of other hits that she had put out a couple years earlier. So in a way, you could sort of say it's like a campaign that has like a few legit hits on it from Good Days to I Hate You. Obviously, mm-hmm. Kill Bill is the seismic anti-hero as it was style hit. And then sort of, I guess, almost a year into that album's campaign or into a year after that album came out, she's kind of very organically stumbled into a second huge song in Snooze. So that feels like counter-programming. Oh, I can Is there any others that come to mind for you guys recently? Like, even if we, again, widen our scope outside of just traditional pop stardom where artists are stringing together multiple classic hit songs in an album campaign? 
I think you can you can find a couple. I mean, I've already talked about Doja Cat and, and Noah Khan, who I think are two good examples of artists who have done that. But you can look at someone like Bad Bunny, who doesn't necessarily. I mean, his last album didn't do this, but Unvarnasanti from a couple of years ago did, where that album was just so successful right away that there were songs that debuted on the Hot 100 the album release week and then just stuck around there forever. And, mm-hmm. and they they didn't necessarily it wasn't necessarily a your turn my turn thing with the hit singles. It was just that there were six enormously popular from the, songs from that album at once. And mm-hmm. so the, the, that that's sort of one counter example and kind of one other way to do it is you just you just kind of hit him with everything right away. He doesn't do advanced singles really, n- not not as much as some of these other artists that we're talking about. So every, it was sort of like a bounty of riches for his fans and people loved so many different songs on that album that different songs were sort of take, taken off at different times, but it was never in order. It was always just every, all, everything was happening everywhere all at once. And you, there, there's other sort of examples like of, of country artists who can kind of have yeah. blockbuster albums a sort of old-fashioned way because country radio is still such a massive thing that someone like Morgan Wallen, he's had, you know, uh, you know, one thing at a time, this is his most recent album, had like five or six pretty decent sized hits off of it because country radio is still going to do that thing where it'll play a song until it, until the, the label says don't play it anymore and then it'll move on to the next one. And because country radio is still such a massive part of that genre infrastructure, it can it can still kind of feel like a sort of old school rollout where like now mm. Morgan Wallen's on like the fourth or fifth single from that album. Right. And actually right, probably right. even more than that because he had a couple that came out before its release. And that, that song is, mm. is, is having a pretty traditional run as a, as a, a quote-unquote hit. So it, it, you, you see it happen in different ways and they're all pretty interesting and they're all pretty informative and instructive of, of what the music industry is like in 2024, but they're more the exception than the rule and I think that's going to continue to be the case. Eric, maybe last question I want to put out there is, you know, we just got a new single this morning from Ariana Grande yeah. and from Little Nas X and so we're getting into another cycle with big pop stars rolling these albums out. If you were designing Ariana's campaign or Little Nas X's campaign for this record, with everything that we've talked about today in mind, what do you think would be like the best approach or design for them as they enter a new cycle here in 2024? Depending on how Yes And does. I mean, if it if it catches fire, I mean, it's a fine song. I've only listened to it like a couple times today. But if it catches on, just wait for it to die down before you actually start pushing something else just to see how crazy long that its lifespan actually will be. Uh, Because if it hits and then it falls off like like do as houdini did it's like a testing the waters thing we have not gotten right. an announcement from dua lipa and i think it's right. probably a good thing that we haven't because houdini was kind of a flash in the pan and now she can kind of wait maybe like take notes on did this work and then push out sometime this year like an actual lead single album mm. so you think that like even if yes and comes out is a hit she announces an album she puts the album out everyone's heard the song she still should be waiting until she puts another single sort of push into motion but until that song dies out no i think she should wait to put another one out until it seems like it's on the downturn if possible. right exactly yeah. right all right well very interesting conversation guys thank you both so much for being here i think we honestly should go out on get him back because i think get him back really deserves love i hope everybody gets as much of a chance to hear get him back as humanly possible so i'm gonna say that's the song that we should go out on andrew Unterberger, Eric Bennett, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having yeah. us. Thanks for having us. Justice for getting back. Yes. Justice for getting back. <laughs> <laughs>